OWASP reverse engineering and control modification prevention project focuses just on educating developers around simple things that they can do to prevent reverse engineering, make it very hard, or also detect at runtime that things have modified and things have changed in ways that they weren't expecting. Welcome to OWASP 24-7, sponsored by the Open Web Application Security Project, improving the security of software. With support from Sonatype, a trusted partner for open source governance, management, and compliance. This is your host, Mark Miller. Jonathan, you and I were talking a bit. What projects are you working on with OWASP right now? Um, so right now I'm working on a number of different projects. I'm working on, um, first and foremost, I have the OWASP Reverse Engineering and Code Modification Prevention Project, and that's an ArcSan-sponsored project, uh, which focuses exclusively on educating technical communities around how to raise the bar when it comes to preventing people from reverse engineering or modifying your mobile apps. Let me back up. ArcSan. Is that a company? What is it? Oh, ArcSan. ArcSan. ArcSan Technologies. Uh, it's a company which started in 2001 with a strong military history. Um, sort of a, a, a side note, a colorful background. Um, the company started as a result of a military incident involving China back in 2001. A plane, a secret plane of ours crashed in China. China agreed to send it back. They sent it back piece by piece mm -hmm. as they reverse engineered it. As a result of that incident, um, the Department of Defense mandated an improvement in reverse engineering resistance for their software on these devices, and that's where ArcSan was born. So there's a lot of military history, uh, and it started off as ArcSan Defense. The company then split off into a commercial entity in 2010 after, getting, after selling the military side to a semiconductor firm. The company now focuses on uh, mobile apps in well, basically, it focuses on the, the fundamental problem is doing more and more sensitive stuff in places that you have no control over as an organization. And that's, that's increasingly becoming the standard. Um, you know, you're seeing a lot more, in particular mobile, you're seeing a lot more movement towards offline functionality um, involving things like offline authentication, offline data storage. Um, basically, in order to because the connections to the servers aren't necessarily reliable. So because of that, we're seeing, we have no choice now but to address the issue of preventing people from reverse engineering or raising the bar, and people are also opportunistically modifying these apps and redistributing them and exploiting um, you know, organizations through these apps with increasing offline sensitivity. Define for me what you mean in that context by raise the bar. So we want to make it significantly harder for an attacker to reverse engineer the code and get something meaningful out of it, some sort of intellectual property that they can then repackage and redistribute. So no reverse engineering is technically ever foolproof, um, but really you can make it significantly harder just through very simple actions that developers can take. Mm -hmm. So the OWASP reverse engineering and control modification prevention project focuses just on educating developers around simple things that they can do to prevent reverse engineering, 
make it very hard, or also detect at runtime that things have modified and things have changed in ways that they weren't expecting. How active is the project? So the project's only started in December of 2013, actually. And so within ArcSan, I submit, I create stuff, I create content, and then eventually it gets rolled out to the OWASP project. Probably every few months we're doing something new. Plus so. you've got the, the mobile top 10 going, right? Correct. So as part of the, connected to the reverse engineering project is the OWASP mobile top 10. Now, before I came on board to the OS Mobile Top 10, um, Jason Haddix, uh, Daniel Messler, and Jack Menino had done their own independent analysis and study of the prevalence of mobile vulnerabilities. And one of the big ones which they came up with was, in fact, binary risk, exactly the, the space that I'm currently in. I came on board to OS Mobile Top 10, and they immediately said, oh, you, your company does exactly this particular risk category. Can you please fill out this area and go, go into a bit more detail around, uh, you know, what are the different types of binary attack vectors, what are the things that organizations need to worry about when they're hosting mobile code and they need to protect against reverse engineering. So that's how I got involved with the OS Mobile Top 10 project. And that's, that's been, um, I started, I got involved in that um, at the start of AppSec. So I went to AppSec California and that's really when I started getting involved. So ArcSan submitted its own data to contribute to the Mobile Top 10 project. On a side note, um, we're now starting to talk about the OWASP Mobile Top 10 2015, and we're looking for people to actually start submitting vulnerability data um, that we can use um, when we're defining the categories for the Mobile Top 10 2015. So if any of your audience members know of any open sources of vulnerability data that you know, organizations are willing to release, that would be incredibly useful for us. Um, one of the things that we weren't happy about in 2014 was, frankly, you know, we had, we had maybe six or seven different vendors or consultancies give us vulnerability data, but frankly, we'd like to have a lot more than that. So the more the better in terms of the accuracy of the data. Uh, your background, it was with um, like Fortify, right? Correct. And so what were you doing there? So at Fortify, I was a member of the Software Security Research Group, um, reporting to Jacob West, um, and most of my time was spent investigating languages, frameworks, looking for application security vulnerabilities, and then integrating that intelligence into the Fortify SCA product line, so into the engine itself. So you could produce these rules that reflect the intelligence that you're gathering through this research. You know, I've been talking to people about the problem of trying to solve vulnerabilities after something's been deployed. Right. And so what's interesting about your project, it sounds as if with your mobile projects, you're trying to build more secure software. You want to build it secure, so you want to still follow secure coding guidelines. Um, and in, in my space, I take it a step further and say, okay, it's built securely. Now that it's in a hostile environment, such as mobile, it needs to be kept secure. Because in those environments, you really don't have control over who's going to do what to that code. So you can keep it secure once you've built it secure, you think so, really? Honestly? Yeah. You can keep it secure 
by making it much more difficult to apply reverse engineering. And you can do things like detect at runtime, you know, what is the environment in which you're operating, what is changing in your code, are things changing, how are they changing, and you can react accordingly. So how would you monitor changes to a deployed application? Well, what you do is you can do simple things like, uh, let's take a hybrid mobile app, for instance. So in a hybrid mobile app, you're, you're going to have a ton of presentation layer logic on your client. So you can do resource verification at runtime and basically compare. you can inspect at runtime the resources sitting on the disk and compare them against uh, what you knew at build or compile time. And if the two checksums match up, then you know no one is playing with your presentation logic. They're not tweaking or injecting any malicious JavaScript into your resources. That's one small example. There are many other examples. Another classic example, you know, in the case of reverse engineering, it's incredibly much more effective to just take and identify really sensitive parts of your app that are doing things like validation, authentication, session management, exception handling, and move it into a less interpretive language. So move it away from your highly interpretive languages like Java or Objective-C and move it into the native languages like C, where it's it becomes more difficult to understand what's going on under the surface because you don't have as much metadata associated, associated with the code hanging around in the binary. And you can do other things too, like strip symbols, turn off optimizations. Um, we, we talk a bit, quite a bit about it in the OWASP Mobile Top 10. You've been working with some high-profile financial clients. Yeah. Are you seeing similarities between the different financial institutions that are helping you with the mobile development? Absolutely. Once again, in the financial vertical, financial services vertical, we're seeing very similar trends. Organizations are more and more doing sensitive things offline, and they're also much more worried about things like um, running in environments that are not, what shall we say, up to snuff in terms of integrity. So a lot of, a lot of people that come to us from financial services, um, they come to us because, in fact, their code has been hacked. Um, you can download it off of a third-party site. It's been modified. Jailbreak detection logic's been disabled. Root detection logic's been disabled or circumvented in some way. And that's usually the starting point for these financial service organizations. They come to us because they, they realize that they were trying to inspect integrity. They were trying to do things the right way. And in fact, they had problems along the lines of you know, unauthorized code modification. So that, this is a very common theme that we've seen steadily grow over the last two to three years within financial services, and it, it continues to become more and more prevalent. What's the overlap between mobile and Internet of Things? Is there, is there a lot there? I mean, intuitively, I think there would be a lot of overlap. There is. So, you know, Internet of Things is an interesting one. Once again, the common theme is you are running code in an environment which you have no control over as an organization. If what you are doing is sensitive in nature and you are doing it in an environment you have no control over, you should be thinking about reverse engineering prevention and 
integrity preservation or at least integrity violation detection and reporting. Once again, it's the similar theme of moving towards an, uh, environments that you frankly have no control over. You know, in the classic web world, you applied secure coding techniques, you took your web code and you hosted it in your own firewall, firewalled off server, which you had control over that environment. And that's simply moving away. It's disappearing. In this move towards IoT and mobile, even cars, cars are very much doing the same thing. I consider cars the ultimate mobile device. And once again, we're running, in, we're running towards this notion of more offline functionality, more sensitive, out of your control in terms of who's doing what with it. The scary one for me, cars are scary enough, but hospitals. Right. The prevalency of, of what's going on in hospitals right now is mind-boggling. So we have a number of different um, use cases. You know, there are some that come to mind immediately, which are very kind of scary. Like, um, you know, think about pacemakers. Think about insulin monitor insulin monitors. Um, if you think about it from the manufacturer's perspective, they're typically worried about somebody taking and pirating those devices and making knockoffs. So they're already worried about somebody, you know, buying the buying the device, reverse engineering the code and redeploying something on some other knockoff device that's gonna do the same thing. So that's one aspect of binary risk within um, hospital devices. The other particularly frightening thing is the idea of being able to, you know, violate the integrity of the code associated with things like insulin insulin response monitoring yeah. or regulation. I can't go into specifics, but I can say that within our company, we've had a lot of interest from medical device companies who are doing really critical things with code that, once again, they have no control over. So that's sort of how I take it. That's how I take the, the whole medical industry and where it's going. So, so there's really two sides. There's manufacturers, dangerous to the manufacturer, through reverse engineering and brand damage associated with that, as well as dangers to the patient in terms of violation of integrity. I'm more concerned about the patient. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, ultimately, the manufacturers are, too, because having your patients die on you, it generally doesn't work. It's not good for business. From a mobile perspective, how is using a mobile device now as a controller for other things affecting what you're working on. As a controller for other things. As an example, I was at Fry's yesterday. Right. And they've got little robots now that you can control with your with your smartphone. I suppose. I mean once again it's this notion of assuming trust in what's being issued from the phone. But there are some interesting scenarios, particularly with iOS well even with Android where you could do you can do be runtime behavior modification without actually requiring direct binary patching or modification of code directly via things like method swizzling or native hooking. So essentially what you can do is intercept code on, intercept the API calls on the phone and redirect them to your own foreign malicious code, have it do whatever it wants to, and then re resume control back to the original code or simply bypass the original code. In which case, you could, you could totally get into whole areas related to, you know, it, it immediately reminds me of SCADA and that sort of area in terms of SCADA risk.
It seems like it would be a fun hack at a conference to say, here's a robot, I'm controlling it, who can hack it first and make the robot do something that I haven't said to do? There's a really good documentary that I just saw on Vice about um, hacking drones, where one drone can hack another drone <laughs> in the air. Ooh! Yeah, and I thought that was really cool. Um, and it was doing it via infrastructure um, exploitation, infrastructure vulnerability exploitations. Um, but yeah, basically, you know, they had a parrot. You remember, do you know parrot? The parrot device that everyone's got. It's got the four blades, and you yes, can buy it. Yes, yes, yes. So that was able to basically intercept and stop another device from communicating and getting commands, and it was able to basically act as that host that it was supposed to be talking you to. You can build a mobile shield. Right. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, originally we had started this conversation because I had made a comment in one of the OWASP leader lists about the auto industry, and um, one of the things that I, is sort of my pet peeve at the moment is everyone's talking about hacking cars, and everybody, everyone's always taking the infrastructure approach to hacking cars, and they're thinking about, you know, okay, how can I get onto the CAN bus, and how can I talk to this particular device, or how can I send some malicious packets, or do some fuzzing, um, your classic infrastructure-related attacks. I think about cars in a different way. As I had said earlier, I think about cars as, um, you know, mobile the ultimate mobile device in which you don't necessarily have control over the code which is executing within these devices. So there's some really interesting hacks which can come, which have come to light. So for instance, we have a lot of people come to Arxan who are interested in protecting against protecting their car hacks against infotainment attacks. With infotainment, essentially what they're doing is they are streaming an encrypted stream from a satellite to a car, playing the music. A binary attack could result in somebody taking that device and taking a decrypted stream from memory and writing it to their own disk. So that's where you get into music piracy. That's, that's a form of piracy which results from a binary attack against a car. Now, some of the more other interesting attacks against cars, if you want to take it from a manufacturer's perspective, cheap knockoffs or pirated versions of devices or little car components that you can buy in China, um, once again, there's all sorts of embedded logic which needs to be protected against reverse engineering or it needs to be made a lot more difficult. A lot of manufacturers in China are ripping off designs and selling equivalent pieces of logic or devices um, at a fraction of the cost and ripping off the code as well, which is dangerous for everybody involved, including the consumer, because typically they're cutting corners, the standards are a lot lower, and things just don't add up in terms of the, they don't meet certain physical standards that they should be meeting. And you, you see that in all sorts of other related industries. There's a whole host of other types of attacks related to um, integrity violation with cars. Um, you know, you have people who are selling devices that will enhance your car in some way in terms of increasing fuel efficiency or making your car accelerate particularly faster or all these all these sort of ricer mentality gadgets which are being sold online what they've done is they've essentially 
modified code within these devices to basically enhance the car in some way, but obviously that has impacts on physical performance and specification, which could result in danger to the actual driver. And ultimately, that could result in brand damage to the car manufacturers as well. Those are some small examples of another way of thinking about car hacks beyond just what everyone's talking about at the moment, which is mainly infrastructure focused in my opinion. That's where, when we had originally had that discussion on the leader list, that's where really I was coming from. So yeah, at, at our 10 we have quite a few different automotive vendors who are interested and come to us to address this particular type of problem. In this particular space, I think that the issues related to reverse engineering and code modification, they're not particularly sexy. They're very old problems which have been well established and typically people just sort of throw their hands up in the air and say there's nothing that can be done. But you know, I'm a strong believer that there's tons of things that we can do and the OWASP project that I lead gives a lot more detail uh, around you know, practical things that you can do as a code developer you know, in order to fight this battle or make it a lot more painful without a lot of effort. Enough effort that these people are just going to move on to the next target. I've been talking with Jonathan Carter from the OWASP Mobile Top 10 project, specifically for this. Uh, we're leading up to Black Hat Conference tomorrow. So, Jonathan, thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me. You have been listening to OWASP 24-7 with your host, Mark Miller. OWASP 24-7 is sponsored by the Open Web Application Security Project, improving the security of software. With support from Sonatype, a trusted partner for open source governance, management, and compliance.